Thank you for coming, and I feel very honoured, and I'm sure you are extremely happy to have so distinguished an author as John Lancaster here this afternoon. Um, he doesn't really need an introduction, but I shall do it anyway, and forgive me, I'm a reader. Um, I'm the wrong page. That's great, wasn't it? But you know, we will not very good. As, as we know, John, John, John is an award-winning novelist, and um, he's worked as a journalist, as a football reporter, a book editor, and a restaurant crit critic, amongst other things. He was deputy editor of the London Review of Books, which he still um, uh, uh, writes articles for, and a regular contributor to The New Yorker. My husband was particularly pleased about that, because he just would hate to miss a week for The New Yorker. Um, he's written three novels. Debt to Pleasure, Mr. Phillips, and Fragrant Harbour, which is a memoir, family romance. And non-fiction, Whoops, Why Everyone Owes Everyone and No One Can Pay, a portrait of the global financial crisis. I love that, that piece there. So. <laughs> Good. Um, John, you, you began this, this, this book in uh, 05, and I, I believe in 09 you, you had, it was a long time to write a book this length, you, you had um, a thought that you put it aside now that you had the first draft and you read books before you came back to it. That's a very difficult thing for you to do, isn't it? And why did you do it? Well, I, um, I, can you hear me, by the way? Very well, so, sir. Okay. Um, I'm not <laughs> can you hear me now? Yeah, I might do this because uh, look quite good. No? Maybe we've got to lean down. How about that? It's always this annoying thing that happens if people can't hear, they come up and tell you at the end. <laughs> they want to punch you and you want to punch them. Can you hear me at the back? No, no, no. A bit more. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to lift it up because there's no other way they can... Okay, fair enough. I put it on your book. Maybe we have another one. No, no, I'm fine. Um, well, the short answer was, um, I always do that. I always put a book aside um, for a few months before... Um, otherwise, you're still in a kind of... Um, put it another way. Um, when, when, I, when I start writing, I try to only move forwards. So I don't reread. I don't rewrite. I do a set amount of words every day, and it's an absolute rule. I only go forwards, um, and all the kind of critical and second-guessing bits of me, because I, I worked as an editor for quite a few years. Um, so all the bits of me that are asking questions about what would work, what would do, what wouldn't, how I should do things differently, have I made got certain things wrong? And the answer to those things is always yes. There are things wrong. Yes, there are things that should be different. Um, you know, there's always things you need to change, but I don't do any of that, and only go forward, and then so do no this. Second draft or anything like that, so. No, uh, lots of second and third draft, but okay. but that that's a sort of separate process. And then it's like um, um, gear change would be the wrong metaphor. It's like um, uh, switching sort of magic hats in Harry Potter. Um, I, I then have a sort of different editing hat when I go over and try and see it clearly and try and look at all the things that need changing and reworking and, um, uh, you know it's just it's um, 
it's hard to describe the other process, but the other process is much more um, critical. Uh, and it just takes a break before you can do that. You can't go from, um, you know, trusting your instincts and going with it and going with the flow to second-guessing every choice and wondering if things work and, and kind of interrogating it and challenging it, you know, sentence by sentence. So I always take that break. Um, and I always promise I'm going to do something super constructive, like, um, uh, you know, charity fun runs, that's one. And oh, um, going back, and um, I got a really rubbish grade in my, in my O-level German, so I sometimes have fantasies about going back and improving my German. Uh, and I sometimes have fantasies about writing a screenplay. And uh, I've never done a fun run, never looked at a German thing, and uh, never written a word of a screenplay. Um, and so, and months go past. In, uh, and it's a funny thing, I can never remember afterwards exactly what I've done with that time. It just sort of goes. Um, and this time, I finished, I'd finished a draft of the book, and I thought, right, no, I will seize the day. I will use these few months of kind of gear change to... Um, write about this thing that I'd got completely fascinated by, which was the you know the global meltdown that had happened in parallel with with writing the novel, um, and that's why I you know went off and wrote works. But you foresaw the the, the crash, didn't you, beforehand? And then by the time you had a break, was there a reason why you chose that subject? I I'd say I'd love to give myself points for properly having foreseen the crash. I I thought that um, I thought that there was. I mean, I knew that there was a boom and bust. I, I bet the whole book, really, on there being a boom and bust. And, and I started it with a description of the, of the kind of bubble at the top of the boom, because I was certain the bubble, bubble would pop. Um, but I, I think I mainly thought that it was a house price bubble, um, you know, of the sort that I'd already seen before. Um, lots of people in this room over a certain age will vividly remember, you know. And one of the oddest things about the... the um, financial thing is that, you know, we had a, um, a, a, a 30% decline in our housing market in 1987, and, and it's as if that happened in 1687, for the extent to which people remembered it. I mean, it just completely forgotten. And um, I got fascinated by that thing about the, the, the sort of permanent ongoing amnesia that you get in the world of finance. And the, this sort of untruth which is constantly retold and always believed, which is, this time it's different. And um, it was fascinating that, you know, this bubble was manifestly a bubble. And yet when it did pop, it turned out actually not to be about London property prices, which is still amazingly and mystifyingly to me um, intact, uh, but actually this sort of global systemic crisis that was actually linked to property prices, but in a different way. So it was that, it was that combination of being sort of a bit right and also quite significantly wrong was, was what interested me in the, you know, the difference between the imagined version and what actually happened. But when in 09 you went back to it, did, did, did you uh, want to change anything because of the changed circumstances? He is an imposter. Run. <laughs> <laughs> We just found the real no one way, in the cupboard. Doing that. <laughs> no, it, it says, "Can we speak a little louder?" <laughs> right. No, we can speak a little louder. Absolutely. It's just—it's a conversation, and conversations don't usually take place with loud voices. But we can have a go. Can't we? <laughs> yeah, Alan Bennett has a story about um, 
reading uh, Winnie the Pooh stories in the children's library and other children who weren't part of the thing started coming in and making louder and louder and by the end he was actually screaming and <laughs> he was recording sounds like Winnie the Pooh being read by Goebbels <laughs> In your excellent um, article in the Financial Times this morning which I hope you've all had a chance or you haven't, will have a chance to read you explain the three reasons why money is not included in many fictional works and mention Henry James. Can you enlarge on that? Well, I think there's a, there's a funny thing that has happened to the literary novel, which is that um, if it's got an interesting subject, people regard it as being less inherently literary. Um, it's as if a, sort of a certain degree of actual real-world interest in the subject matter makes the book less like literature with a capital L, which is a really odd thing to happen to the novel. Um, I mean, there are two strange things that happened to the novel. One is that if we were having this conversation in 1960, we'd have assumed that the serious novel was going more and more down sort of experimental, internalised, you know, route into, that was to do with modernism and to do with the aftermath of Joyce, and we'd probably be discussing the nouveau roman and French writers like that, and the assumption would be, basically, I think, that the novel is going to get more and more difficult and more and more separate from the audience, and that absolutely hasn't happened. It's really, and it's very strange that it hasn't happened, because the serious visual arts have got more demanding, serious music has got more demanding, they've left the audience behind, but the, the novel has taken this strange swerve back towards the reader in a way that none of the other big forms have. It's, it's a really curious fact, and I think it's partly because the novel has built into it. You know, the, the audience of the novel, in a sense, is the novel. There's a, there is this proper um, umbilical link in a way that there isn't quite, let's say, the symphony. You know, that you can't have an abstract symphony or an abstract painting. You can't have an abstract novel. So that's the first odd thing about what's happened. The second odd thing is, is with that, um, that you know, the literary has gradually drifted away, if you've been crude, you'd say from the interesting, um, but it has drifted away from certain sorts of real world subject. And when you, I was trying to think about why, because Dickens wouldn't agree with that, I don't think Jane Austen would have George Eliot, and you know, Balzac, Tolstoy, Turgenev, Dostoevsky, Jack Daniel Defoe, Herman Melville, none of them would have accepted that idea that there are sort of subjects that are somehow too subjecty to qualify. And I think what has happened in, in the English tradition, English literature tradition, is, is to do with James. That James had um, sort of reified the idea of writing as literature with a capital L. And for all his greatness in many respects, uh, in most respects, I think he did have a distorting idea a distorting impact on the novel in terms of um, it's that that's that thing Henry James said about him, which was supposed to be a compliment. It was actually one of the strangest compliments ever given. James had a mind so fine that no idea could violate it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know Mary McCarthy wrote an entire book called Ideas in the Novel, attacking James and, and attacking Eliot for having pretended to think it was a compliment. Because actually, Eliot's sort of saying is that novelists are a bit thick. And there is this sort of swerve in the novel. And the thing I, I, I quote in the piece is from The Ambassadors. Um, and there's a character whose family fortune is all tied up in you know, making an item of the commonest domestic use. 
and that's it. They never tell you what it is. There's an entire Jamesian literature to do with working out what it is, and the assumption is it's something to do with toilets. But you know, he doesn't tell you. And you know, Balzac would have written chapter and chapters about how toilets are made, and they probably would have been really interesting. Dickens would have been fascinated by the common object of everyday domestic use. But James doesn't go there, and in a sense, the novel that comes out of James doesn't go there either. It brings to mind the theory that, in fact, if you have something important you want to communicate and say, that sometimes it's more effective to say that in novel form than it is in, in, in fact. Factually. I'm not sure that novels do say things in quite that way. I mean, I think if you have an argument, it's better argued than, than, than putting a novel forward. And I think one of the things I came very strongly to feel um, is, that, is that, and one of the reasons I, you know, I, I wrote Woods was to keep the explanation separate from the story. I think explanations break fiction quite quickly. And... Um, there's so much, in the, the, you know, this time is different is a permanent, permanent falsehood. And greed and fear as motivators in financial markets in general, that's, those are permanent truths. <coughs> but the specifics of what happened in the credit crunch were really interesting and were unique to it. They were, they, you know, they were this time only. And they, that required expert explanation. And, um, that and the sort of di explanation, argument, um, didactic trains of thought, all of those things are very, very difficult to do in a fiction that also is a satisfactory world, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, what I found fascinating about Capital is the vivid and extraordinarily detailed stories about people. It wasn't only the story, it was the understanding you, you clearly have um, of the behaviour patterns of people, uh, as well as describing them or what, where they are or what they do. I mean, you seem to, to you've, you've depicted so clearly how each reacts against another, and I find that fascinating. I, uh, I do know the. Did you know these people? Did you make them up? Um, I made. I mainly made them up. They often would start from a kind of start from an observation or, or something I'd seen or. Um, Sort of um, actually having said that thing about Henry James, there's a thing I recognise because when someone was telling the story, he'd quite often stop them at a certain point. He wanted to go away and think about it and take the German way. It must have been outlandishly annoying as a habit, imagining <laughs> halfway through a really good story in Great Manchester. Uh, but I, I sort of know what that means in terms of, you know, that there, there is often a kernel of. Um, of something that you can sort of appropriate and sort of dream up into something mm -hmm. in, in the story. There are several things. Um, you know, uh, I mean, one, one example from real life, uh, there's a character called Spigniew in the novel, he's a builder from Poland, and we once had someone do some work on a house, and he, he used to, he had his laptop checking his share portfolio uh, on while he was painting. He'd go, he'd go across the room, and he had it, you know, hooked up to our internet and asked for the password. Uh, and he'd go and look at his share price during the day. And he was day trading while also... And I don't know anything else about him, but that really stayed with me. <laughs> and I, I, and he, that person is a whole character who, you know, maybe he is like speaking it in the book. Probably not. But I spent a lot of time, you know, in my mind, um, effectively living with that person. That's what I try and do, trying to live with him. 
Yes, well, it's clear. And it, it really, it's all, it reminds me as a documentary filmmaker. In a documentary film, you hope to part the curtains and have your audience look at something which intrigues them and gets to know a little better, and that it broadens it out not to be of interest to the small group of people, to a large group of people. And I found the individual stories and, and uh, caricatures and picture of these people extraordinarily real. They'll stay in my memory. Oh, thank time. you. Well, one of the I did want to do that thing of, um, of the fact you another fancy I've often had walking down the street in London is well, if you could go into every single house and hear every single life story behind it, you know, you, your sense of the space around you would completely change. That was one of the things I wanted to do. Funnily enough, actually, um, I, di I didn't, hadn't read it before I started writing the book. Actually, it might not even have come out. Um, there's a wonderful academic book that does exactly that by um, a man called Daniel Miller. He's an anthropologist at, at um, I think it's at UCL, um, some of you probably know, called The Comfort of Things. And that is exactly about a street in South London, and it's about, it doesn't say where it is, but it, and it's about people's lives through their relationship with their possessions, uh, and their, their, the way that their, their selves are expressed through the things they own. And it's a really interesting book because it's a sort of defense of, uh, of the sort of positive aspects of materialism in the way that our identities are created by you know, our stuff that it isn't just a, a case of um, you know, all materialism is bad and objects are bad and we should be above that. He, he makes a very persuasive case for the way that our life stories are imprinted. You know, and, and the thing that, oddly enough, it, it really reminded me of it was, uh, I think it's now finished the Grayson Perry exhibition at the British Museum, which is about uh, objects by anonymous artists, but it's also about the way you make up a story of your own life and you have the things around you that sort of retell that story and that, in a sense, make up that story. No, I can quite understand that. When I meet somebody, I want to set them in their, in their, in their, in the, in the proper picture. So if you go to their house, you understand them a lot better. If you look at their library, you understand them even better. But, you know, um, I think it is important, and I think we do get very fond. I'm very fond of my possessions, and I, 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 I feel very often guilty about it, but you put my mind to rest. Well, Daniel, Daniel Miller's book starts, the first person in it is someone who's had, um, who's been in care for quite a lot. Mm. They're not, they're not um, severely disabled, but they've had a series of problems. And, and they're living in a, in a flat that has no possessions. Mm. And they've been in for 10 years. And this man has no belongings of any kind. And it's very, it's interesting because it's an absolutely desolately sad mm. Mm. state. You know, to, to be to be thingless. Mm. Well, minimalism is a bit like that, isn't it? I mean, and he has no contact with other people. Mm. Minimalism is a sort of willed form of it. Yes, it's a willed <laughs> I always remember that there's a minimalist architect who um, puts white tapes on the um, white tapes on his books, so that you can't see the spine because <laughs> <laughs> everything's white. <coughs> that's weird. That's a glimpse into the abyss, I think. But let's go back to, 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 to your book of Pe Peeps Road. Did you choose a road <coughs> called Peeps particularly? No, that's a straightforward, that's a technical thing that Henry James would have called a cock-up. It actually had other names in the course of the writing. Then when I finished, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to, I, just, I was annoyed with the name of the, the road in the novel. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, I got, or I got sort of fed up with it, and um, decided on peace because 
broadly speaking, the novelist in southwest London. And Pepys, when he retired from the Admiralty, moved to a sleepy village in the country called Clapham, as then was, <laughs> uh, sort of five miles outside London. And um, I thought that there would be four people who would get that, and he'd think it was very funny. <laughs> I was so, because nothing in London is named after writers, as everybody I'm sure knows. It's all named after useless aristocrats who never did anything <laughs> at all, uh, except sit there owning land. Um, so it's in Brixton. yeah. Oh, this one. But there's, a, there's the one bit, there's one bit in... Um, of Railton Road, Shakespeare, Chaucer... Oh, um, yeah, well, there's, a, there's one quite near, there's one <laughs> quite near me, uh, <laughs> where uh, actually <laughs> Philip Henshaw writes this letter. And there's a Tennyson, uh, there's Tennyson... Tennyson Thackeray and someone else in a bit, and, and the locals call it writer's block. <laughs> but there isn't much, and certainly when you look at what you know goes to France, everything's named after it. There's uh, Peach Road in um, near Wimbledon, Rains Park. That's right, so there's another one, um, someone was saying there's another one in, in North London. Um, but that was that was my point was that I was so confident that there wouldn't be anything named after the Peach, because nothing is. Uh, that I didn't check. And it turns out that there is one. Uh, it's sort of down a tooting way. And then, then, then somewhere up north. But it's neither of those streets. It's, uh, well, it's a, it's a road anyway. <coughs> I, I visualise it <laughs> correctly with, with all the houses looking exactly the same. And obviously, as you depict so clearly, all the people inside the houses looking very, very different and leading exceedingly different lives. They don't, the stories, um, interact do that. Was there a reason for that? Well, I think people's lives in London don't interact much. Uh, I, I've long been interested in that. That um, uh, you know, that part of it's come out of writing about money. You increasingly notice these things that things that are loudly declared in public, not only politicians, but you know, there's a certain kind of discourse which is usually the opposite of the truth. It's really striking. Things that are said and said. So we're all in it together. Actually, in practice means we're not even vaguely close to being in it together. And in fact, it's quite close to being the exact opposite of the truth. Obviously, his PR man didn't do well there. No, they did well. It's, it's an effective slogan, even though it's wholly, un wholly untrue. I do think that. Yeah. And um, you know, things like we're going to crack down on bankers' bonuses, what that means in practice is we're not going to do anything at all. And, and, and it's, it's particularly striking in the world of money that things, just very straightforwardly, in practice, mean their opposite. So um, that thing about community that politicians routinely use, and that, and that also you see whenever um, someone's knocked down by a bus, you know, the community is said to be very upset. And then there's, you know, there's usually someone who visibly didn't know, couldn't care less about the person, pretending to be upset and wearing a wreath. And the, the, you know, community, I think, is largely a cant term in modern Britain. I think lots of experience of their life have, have no community in it in that sense at all. I think people have sort of vertical relationships at work and with their families and things like that. But that kind of horizontal bound togetherness, in my experience, in London anyway, just in, doesn't exist. Yeah, I'd say that was in London. I mean, it, I, I'm, you know, I've lived all my life in London, but much more, and, and happily, very much more, in the country. And I think that uh, villages have a community spirit. Not like they used to before money became so vital in our lives, but still, there is a community spirit. People do help each other. They do go and visit a person who's dying or a person who's just had a child. That we briefly lived. I, I, I was brought up in Hong Kong. My father retired. We lived in rural Norfolk for a bit. And uh, the... <laughs> 
and I've lived in quite a few places as a kid. The only place I've ever lived that was fully as atomized as as uh, a sort of urban London street was that Norfolk village. Yeah. That, but, but that might be a particularity of that place. You know, I think I think the UK is a big and complicated place, and I think that there's more atomization and fragmentation than we want to admit. Um, I mean, but it might be that it's mainly urban. I don't know. I'd be, be curious to see in talking to people you read about whether whether that describes a kind of dystopian horror that they don't recognise at all. But for a, lo a lot of Londoners tell me that they, you know, that's what their street is like. Well, I don't like living in London simply because I think it's very uncivilised not to talk to the person who's living right to you know, one small wall away from you and um, and not to recognise. But say good morning in the morning. There's also that thing, Paul Theroux, who lived in London for 20 years, said this rather, it's a chance remark, like lots of the most brilliant things, it's a chance remark. In one of his novels, he said um, that they, they didn't, he didn't bother getting to know his neighbours on the sound English principle that if you did, you'd probably hate them anyway. And I know it can seem like sort of rudeness or indifference, and perhaps it is, but in a funny way, there's a kind of politesse involved. I think I'm telling you, right? Kind of, you know, that thing of sort of, actually, let's not play, we might be friends, because we yeah. probably won't. Yeah. I think that's absolutely it's right. I mean, you might get hauled in and, and have to sit with the babies or something. Else. Well, or just sort of protect, I mean, there's a brief period when, um, it's changed now because the demographics in our street have changed, but there was a brief period when we got to, that we were sort of socialising with people from, you know, kind of a very different, socio-economic background and um, they didn't all work in the city but some of them did and I found it different the Christmas drinks the introductory question if you're a man was so John what are you driving? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's, what, that's if you talk to your neighbours that's where you end up I thought that was only in, in, in schools in schools you know little Harry hates it if little Tommy's father had a bigger car but well, in schools you have to pretend to get off <laughs> and the other one has got any shooting in recently <laughs> oh, well, I, I, I must uh, talk to, ask you to talk about the shooting. Um, well, the character that I think is, is nearest up, um, uh, the, the subject of money, is obviously um, Roger and his terrible wife, Arabella. Um, I, 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 there was a lovely scene with him. Did, how, how many of you have read the book? Oh, not very many. Well, okay, we've got great pleasure to look forward to. I mean, it's a fantastic read, which goes by so quickly. <laughs> but any, anyway, um, he is the banker of the, some of the people that John has chosen to portray. And he he works in this bank, but I've forgotten the name of it, but it has a What's the name? I hope it's made up. Uh, Pink Lloyd. Well, I was so true, it could, it could very easily not be made up. <laughs> I think that's one you have probably seen quite a lot of. <laughs> and he doesn't really like it. He works 12 hours a day, and he uh, <coughs> waiting, waiting, waiting for his million pound bonus, because he can't keep up his lifestyle without it. And so he's going to go past if he doesn't have it. And it seems odd that you should do that, but that's it. And uh, there's a wonderful scene where he goes to um, shooting with some very, very posh chap who he's trying to get to be a client. You go on, John. Tell me the bit, the bit that I want you, the last bit that you can talk about. He doesn't really want this, and he realised it early on. Well, he does really, in, in uh, out shooting. I mean, the thing, that, the thing about germs of, germs of the book coming from reality, that was an instance there. I was, I was in 
uh, I'd gone back to near where we lived in Norfolk, and the germ of that was talking to someone who ran a pub. And, um, and he was describing that the shoots, they, they kill so many pheasants. The pheasants are specifically rare for shoot, reared for shooting, which in itself is a... I know that aristocratic estates used to do that, but that's now you know, completely endemic. And they, they virtually have to be punted up in the air to get them to fly. And so many pheasants are shot that the majority of them are buried. They just get GCBs, turn over the earth and bury the pheasants because there's no market for them. And the, this guy who's sort of affable man in his 60s, uh, who's sort of, you know, and a country dweller to his birds, just said to me, he regarded it as, as wicked. And I was thinking about, about that, that someone who, from, you know, shooting was entirely in his background, and the, you know, the life of those big estates was in his background, and yet he regarded this modern distortion of it as being, you know, a word he didn't use in the street-wise modern sense, wicked. Um, and that was the germ of that scene where they go shooting came from, came from thinking about this new, um, you know, this new thing, which is actually Edwardian. You know, the Edwardians would kill thousands of birds at a single shoot. But this is really what money's done, isn't it? Because the, the shoot starts with the farmer going out to get a rabbit to, to, to skin it and eat it in the evening, and, uh, or, or wild pheasants or whatever it was, which is acceptable if you live in the country as part of country life. But then money made these people who were trying to keep up their appearances do it to an absurd extent with, with thousands of birds and charging huge sums. And, and it's a fashion them. thing too, isn't it? Very much. But what interested me on your chapter was that actually Roger realises in the end that this isn't the kind of life he wants. And then, you know, in, in the end, fate steps in and helps him on it, doesn't it? He semi-realises. I think that one of, like, the thing about him, I think, is that um, I thought everyone was going to hate him. I'm quite pleased they don't, because I don't hate him. Um, is he... And the, he's weak, I think. That's the crucial thing about yes, him. Yeah. And mo most of us are a bit weak. Mm -hmm. and, and he takes on his... Um, Nicely so. Yeah, and, and he takes on the colouring of the world around him. Mm -hmm. And in a different world, he would have been a different man. Uh, and I think that's, that's true for most of us, really. Um, and so he, he, um, he, does get, he does get sick of his life. But I want to, um, at the end of the book, leave open the question of what he, you know, what happens Yes, I, well, I wanted that feeling with all the characters yes, that you, yes. you could form your own view about what would become of them. Mm. Well, because it all happens in a short period, doesn't it? It's a year. Yeah. yeah. So but I like those things. That, um, Robert Altman's, that movie Shortcuts, that was made out made of Robert Altman's, uh, of Robert Altman's and made out of Raymond Carver's stories. <coughs> and a, a thing that's really wonderful about that is that when it ends, you have a very strong feeling that the people's <coughs> lives are continuing. I, I really... Mm. Like mm -hmm. no, I things, think stories that do that, that you feeling when you, um, if you went back a year later, the people they still be there and they would do something else. Mm. But I feel he is basically a simple man. He's married an impossible, very extravagant, sort of almost caricature of a big spending lady. And he then why? So that's why he falls for the the. Um, well, she, she's not. She's Hungarian, yeah. manly, that you know is, is kind and peaceful and, mm. and um, doesn't want anything. And uh, so I, I, you know, I, I think he is. You have made him likable. Also, very well-off people often do feel poor. I mean, I've noticed that. That's mm. that thing of you know being astonishingly wealthy by most people's standards, mm. but feeling a bit stretched and just mm. empirically. Um, that's often the case that people um, people get so wedded to. Um, 
you know, patterns of consumption that they just can't share. Well, the other person that I found very, very interesting was Smitty. Um, describe Smitty to, to, to um, He's the grandson of someone who lives in the street, and he's a, um, a sort of conceptual artist and performance artist, mm -hmm. whose big thing is being um, anonymous. No one knows who he is, and he's made that a very successful stock in trade. Um, well, that was one of the things I was particularly interested in, um, in, in the modern world in general, and about him is, is there's a strange thing about anonymity that lots of people bitterly resent being invisible. People want to be recognised and lots of people feel that they aren't seen. And, and at the same time, and at the same time, the kind of power of the anonymous artist has, is very, very forceful. I grew up you know, with writers like Salinger and Pynchon being absolute icons of not thereness. All writing is partly about not being there, I think. Uh, I think people who like their big impact to be in person don't become writers. Writing is all about absence. And uh, those writers who sort of took that to the, the um, you know, I, in fact, actually for Pynchon it became a problem. I think that his, most, his absence was so compelling it was very difficult for any of his books to compete with it. I still think that about him. I think his life is such a a satisfying fiction, it's very difficult for the fiction to match up. So I've long been interested in that, and Smitty is someone who's, who's effectively commodified that. He's worked out a way of making fantastic amounts of money by, by being anonymous and invisible. Um, he also, rather oddly, is I quite like him as a person, uh, but everybody seems to hate him, and certainly, you know, responses from friends. Um, I had an email just this morning about, oh, well, well, that ghastly Smitty. Um, <laughs> oh, so a very odd thing happens when you write a book and the reader's feelings about characters are completely different from yeah, yours. Yeah. Well, I think he's not very likeable because he's not very nice to his assistants after all, which he did in the end he, he sends the police after him. And he, I feel he sort of takes, he pulls the tail of the world because he's, he, you know, he, I don't think he's, you don't give me the impression that he's really good, just that he's a wise guy. Yes. I mean, some of the stuff about the contemporary art world, I suppose, is, um, you know, as a representative of that, he is, um, he's a hard man to love, um, and that there is a kind of, um, but there is an element of absurdity to that world, and I do, um, you know, I, I, I do consciously have some, have some fun with mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So in the street, there's also Petunia, who's, who's his grandmother. Yes, you see her. And Petunia is a little old lady who hasn't got long for life finds the modern world absolutely impossible to understand and gets put upon all the time. Yeah? Well, she's the last, um, you know, as you see these streets change, one of the things that um, is very striking is that there are fewer and fewer of the, of the people, in effect, for whom the houses were built. Um, and Petunia is the last, the last indigenous inhabitant of the street. She's the last person who's born in the street and um, without giving too much away she dies in the street um, and I was very interested by, by, by the kind of curves of history those houses have gone through you see it in mean, areas like Notting Hill which had this extraordinary reversal where it from being you know, rich to poor and now back to rich mm -hmm. um, uh, as, as the kind of texture of life and the de demographics changes mm -hmm. and um, she's, she's sort of from this um, you know, she can remember the street being bombed in the war, for instance, mm -hmm. um, which lots of houses around that part of London were, because the, 
um, there were anti-aircraft guns on Clapham Common, so the area was thoroughly bombed. And that, in fact, is in the Graham Green novel at the end of the affair. That's part of what that—that's exactly set in that period. Um, and I just wanted to have uh, that a sense of the memory of the street being incarnated in one in a person who's still there. Mm. I find it fascinating, the story really, of houses that were for the Victorian sort of okay, the lower middle class <coughs> Victorians. And now, I mean, those houses must be laughing. They're, 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 they're being advertised for over a million, aren't they? You know, in how long? Not very long. Not very long, no. And that was one of the, that's actually one of the things that started the book, started me thinking about the boom, was that um, it was as if the house had come to life, because you'd see them in the day, look out the window. Um, it was like. Um, it's like a work of feminist science fiction because there are no men. Men workers, they all gone, they all gone, gone before seven, back after seven. So, but yet they're still breeding because they're still children, uh, being put into SUVs and driven off. And that was the first thing you noticed. And then the second thing you noticed is if the houses were alive because things would come to the houses all day. You know, and, and often doing professions which didn't exist, like dog walkers. You know, it's as if someone suddenly invented the dog walker about five years ago. The dog walkers would come to the houses and wine deliveries and a cardo and florists and Pilates instructors and all that. And it was as if the houses had, were being serviced, as if they had, the houses were sort of clicking their fingers and giving orders and having people running towards them. I mean, that was, that was the sort of point at which the novel began for me, was that the idea that the houses are now, the houses are in effect now people. Um, they're so they're so valuable that they're actually agents in their own right. What I think is very clever about what you've done in, in the people you've chosen, the builder and the traffic warden, and, you know, all the various categories of the characters you've chosen, they're all enormously affected by money. So in the way you do talk about money, don't you? Well, I think you know uh, I, it's one of the things that um, is underrepresented, I think, in the canon of the classic in the canon of the classic novel. Mm -hmm impact of money, the impact of economics more generally on people's lives. I think that the way you know, money properly presses on people in a way that um, is, under, is underrepresented, I think. Um, and I think it's a very, you know, part, a lot of the characters of people who come to London and, you know, money is a, is a useful shorthand for the diversity of reasons for which people do come here. It's to do with opportunity and colour and diversity in life and all that, but, you know, Money as an umbrella term does sum an awful lot of those up, and I did want to have it have you know, proper weight as a, as a motivating force. You, you talk quite a bit about people wanting to come to England or to Britain, and uh, the, and the immigrants, and you paint them very kindly and very nicely, um, and, and I think that's good. But do you think that on the whole it's beneficial for them? Most of, quite a lot of them go back, don't they? I mean, are you? you uh, are, 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 they, are we being fair? Well, if people, you know, if we kept them chained in the basement, then no. But, uh, we don't look after them very well. Uh, no, <coughs> but an awful lot of people do, you know, there are good reasons for them coming. I mean, I grew up in Hong Kong, and it made me very, people die trying to get into Hong Kong every, every day. That's through the bank. And we get very, very conscious of the difference between places people want to go and places people want to flee. Mm. And we are the former. I think people do sometimes get a fairly brutal reality check um, mm -hmm. when they arrive here. Um, I think it's particularly now that there's a policy that <coughs> asylum seekers are dispersed, dispersed through the UK, which are often to places which have no support networks. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you can understand why, because otherwise they'd all be in London. But at the same time, that is in itself a brutal jolting 
dislocation for lots of people. So um, uh, I think the idea that um, you know, a, a velvet carpet is rolled out is not true. And uh, not everyone has an amazingly wonderful time when they are here, but it's better, you know, and it's more in tune with our historic, our principles and our traditions to and, and be accommodated rather than not. We benefit. Well, we definitely benefit. Our, our, our whole economic base depends on it, especially um, going forward as the, you know, the productive base of the economy shrinks. We, we have to have immigration. That's one of the things that we're not told is sufficient for. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I think that's actually quite. Um, just to talk, talk about money, do you think money is, is always going to be an evil? No, it's more complicated than that. You know, it's as complicated as people are. Um, I think that we, are, we as a society may be, um, you know, you don't have to be all that old to remember attitudes to money being rather different in this mm -hmm. country, and the notions of restraint mm -hmm. were important, and excess and vulgarity were quite strong negative terms. Mm -hmm. And that's disappeared from the public culture, you know, that the idea that um, conspicuous consumption is bad. I think lots of people hold that as a private, as quite strongly held private belief, but it doesn't really feature in the broader public discourse. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and then, of course, you see something like Call the Midwife is made on telly and everybody loves it, partly because it is depicting a world that I think a lot of people um, sort of semi-remember. Um, so uh, I, th I think... So the short answer is no, but I think that some of our attitudes to uh, to money to excess did, you know, have slid slightly away from the place we came from. I mean, on the other hand, it's a fairly full rebuttal to that to say that you know this was always the most mercantile, money-minded, market-minded country <coughs> in Europe by far, and we were, you know, notoriously scandalous for how obsessed we were with trade and profits and all that. And in a sense, you know. We had this brief Victorian blimp where we pretended to be respectable, but actually, in fact, we, you know, we're noisy, we're vulgar, we're drunk, we're aggressive, and we're obsessed with money, and we always have been. And, you know. <laughs> Does it make any sense to, to expect to get richer every year? Where does the graph lead us? I, I, I don't have a crystal ball on that, but I do, but I do think there is a, you know, a problem about the idea of steadily rising expectations. I think we're manifestly about to hit a bit where... That's not true. I mean, you look, you know, people say, will it be worse than the 70s? And the answer is no. And anyway, the 70s weren't that bad, if you can remember them. Uh, but on the other hand, our, our, our expectations were different. And you know, when Mrs. Thatcher came in, and unemployment was roughly the same, it was three million and a bit. Uh, inflation was in, was in the high teens. Interest rates were in the high teens. That's, I graduated from university at that point. Life did look very dark. But on the other hand, you can remember the three-day week. That which was really properly mm. quite scary and dark, and yet, you know, functioned fine. Mm. And I think things are different now because we've had decades of rising prosperity, and I think there's a particular pinch coming for the generation, some of whom are in this room, who, who may have had one vision of the future, who are about to be confronted with a, a starkly different one. Mm. And I think that there's a real um, potential for kind of intergenerational, an intergenerational rift and a rift between... London and the rest of the country, London kind of becoming Manhattanized and floating off. That's very interesting. I'm going to ask you one last question before I throw it open to, 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 to all questions from the floor. You've written a brilliant, tragic, comic novel. Are you, where are you going now? Are you going to television by any chance? No, uh, I, I can't, I, you know, I, I think um, if I could write for the screen, I'd have tried it. Um, 
So no, I'm going to. Um, I have a non-fiction thing I have in mind, and then a, and another novel I've in mind. Um, well, and I hope it's ten years since the last one. I hope I don't take as long. I was hoping to draw you into television. Yeah, anyway, right. let's, 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 we got some roving mics. Good. Question here. Hello, John. Hi. Good to see you. Um, the last time I w when I was in Hong Kong, one thing really stood out for me is I was sitting in a, I think what we would call a, a greasy spoon here, like a calf. And, and the waiter was in a in a kind of low beat mood, and he was moaning, he says, oh, the Hong Kong and Shanghai bank shares were falling, so HSBC to us here. I, that really sort of struck me, I thought, well, if I was sitting in London, that probably wouldn't have happened. It's very unlikely somebody serving your egg and bacon sunny is saying, oh, my, my share portfolio is not doing very well today. And my question is, uh, you, know, you lived in Hong Kong, and money makes the world go around, and it's a kind of universal language. Um, why did you choose London as the location? I imagine if you had located elsewhere, in say Hong Kong, the narrative, the relationships between the people, people's attitudes towards money are vastly different from London or from New York, despite this global language. And the crisis by no means a UK or London issue, so I just wonder why. Well, um, I was partly writing about what I could see out my window. I was very interested by, by um, the way that London is a global city, which it hasn't always been. You know, it comes and goes. And I remember London seeming sleepy and provincial. When I lived in Hong Kong and we passed through it, London seemed like a, a backwater in the 70s. And I don't think it does now. I don't think you could say that with a straight face. And I think that there are global pressures enacted on London in a way that they weren't. Or it's a proper world city. And um, so I wanted to have that dual thing that the world presses on London and London presses on this street. Um, I, I, I wrote a, a novel about, um, about Hong Kong called Fragrant Harbour about 10 years ago, and I, uh, which in some respects was uh, training for writing this one. And one of the things I was very, very interested in it by about Hong Kong was is exactly that thing of the difference in attitudes to money. And uh, I still slightly miss it. And one of the things about um, Britain, uh, which is annoying and also very funny, is is that Brits only ever talk about money in the form of house prices. <laughs> uh, but it is the only way in which you're completely openly allowed to boast about money. Uh, and it's usually done for, you know, did you hear what they got for that place down the road? Um, and, but if someone mentioned their, their pay packet, you know, that would be wildly vulgar and transgressive and just to ask people what they're earning and I miss that thing where you can just sort of properly talk about that money about you know what do you do what do you earn for it um, uh, I, I, I was always fascinated there was a guy um, one of the shoeshining guys near the Star Ferry who famously had a, a stock portfolio that you know in GP terms was over a million quid and yet he, still, he was still there you know 10 hour a day every day sort of well into his 70s um, and I, I, I really do miss that whole um, um talking about it as if it's a form of, almost a form of sport, you know, the, the kind of, you follow particular things like you f follow particular teams. Um, and the, some of the attitudes to money that you first saw in Hong Kong have actually come here. There's like a sort of reverse takeover of the rest of the world, I think, of a particular kind of free market thing that you, that you saw very clearly in Hong Kong first. Um, but it is true that attitudes are local in particular. I'd, I'd quite like to read a novel about 
French attitudes to money because they still have that thing that we used to have. That um, I mean, if you, I was very struck by French friends who think that they, the kind of implicit assumption is that if someone is rich, they've stolen the money <laughs> in some sense or other. And it can be quite a sort of sophisticated understanding of what is meant by theft, but basically it's stolen. Um, and that, I'd, I'd really li- that's a novel I'd really like to read. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I read the novel, really enjoyed it. It was one of these where I picked it up and then it was like, oh, I've got to go to work the next day. And I was thinking, oh, should I just ring in and spend the day reading it? Um, but one of the things that struck me, and it's interesting what you said about um, shortcuts, because that's one of the sort of things that entered my head uh, when, I was, when I was reading it, was the way all the chapters are so short. And I think that really sort of captures, you know, almost like the fragmented lives that people live and the sort of motion, you know, you get in the city. And I just wondered if, if that's... If that, how you, if that was how you intended to write the novel or is that something that developed as it went on? Um, it, it, that was baked in at a fairly early point. I think I, I was very conscious of wanting um, everyone to have the... when they have their attention, they have equal amounts of it um, to create a structure in which everyone felt equally important. Because um, novels quite often send signals about who actually really matters and I, I didn't want the um, the kind of formal things in the book to do that, to do that for the reader um, and, and that the length that they came out was just somehow that was the, the length at which I found I could do that was in quite short chapters when um, if a chapter sort of got longer it was quite hard to not um, uh, it's hard to describe this but somehow it's harder to keep control of them um, it's a it's a it's a real mystery, um, actually. That the thing about how long things take and how long you should how long you should dwell on particular scenes and particular people. Um, and uh, I spent um, a massive amount of time. And Rebel was saying I started in 2005. It's actually more complicated than that because I started thinking about it at the end of 2005. But it was a long, long time. It was sort of over a year, 18 months or so, before I actually got writing. And most of that time was spent sort of trying to making architectural choices about the book and who the people in it would be and trying to spend enough time imagining them to, to feel I knew them and questions of balance between the different stories. And that's, that thing about the length kind of came out of that time I spent um, um, on what I think of as, a, as the sort of um, architecture. And it's a bit like the difference between the architectural choice in a house and the painting and decorating. Because in the writing, you can fix the painting and decorating, but if the architectural thing's gone wrong, it, it's going to fall over. Um, and that was one of the, the main choices I sort of made early on. And by the way, um, you know, one of the reasons I spent so long thinking about it is because once you get going, you can't, it's very difficult to judge. And if you've made a mistake, because you, you, you have these mood swings anyway, um, if you've made a mistake, it's hard to tell. You, know, it's, you, you, you're, you, you spend a lot of time distrusting your own judgment anyway. Um, and that was one of the things I spent a lot of time worrying about after I'd kind of gone past the point of no return. Yeah, I haven't read your book yet, John, but it's very interesting. Uh, one of the most inspirational books I've read was uh, Ragged Trousers for Anthropist, written by Robert Tressel. And it would really change the class consciousness of the working people at a time when capitalism had a different form it had today. Now, as you know, capitalism moves on 
the form of it moves on. The question I would like to you, have you dissected capitalism as it is today? You know, you talk about people living in certain streets. They live in certain streets today because places have been gentrified because the rich, rather than living on the outskirts, want to come back in. Do you understand? So it's not just the sort of um, people living down the street, it's the whole ethos of around that of why it's happening. And at the end of the day, is there like, say, the raggy trousers, there was a message, an anti-capitalist message there that inspired a hell of a lot of working classes. Would you say that you've got some sort of message in your book that could, say, maybe change a certain amount of class consciousness in this country? Well, I think the, I'd love the ragged trousers philanthropist. I think um, the main way writers change the world is by changing the way people see the world. I think that's the, that's the way it works. Um, and uh, I think that's a slightly different thing from having a message. I think I disagree with, with Tressel's project on that, but oh, I think it would have to be done differently now. I, com I completely agree. I mean, one of the things I was interested in tried to reflect in the book was that thing about um, do you, you remember when, when the, we were all preoccupied by thoughts about nuclear war, and there used to be those maps of how explosions would radiate outwards, you know, the consequences here would be that, and the consequences there would be that and money has had that effect in London you know, in my, in my lifetime, this sort of money bomb radiating out and the people who used to live in one area have been pushed out a bit further and the people who live there have been pushed out further still and there has been a kind of um, profound structural change in, in literally just who lives you know, that house there, the person who lives in that house has been dictated by these economic forces over which individuals have no control. And one of the reasons I was asked why there are so many immigrants in the book, I mean, one of the reasons is I'm very interested in immigrant experience. But the other thing is that now the, the, the people who would once have done those jobs no longer live in London because they've been driven out. Um, just the economic forces have pushed them back. Um, I think, you know, I think you can, I'd hope people would see, um, the, see the city around them slightly differently for having read it. And see things that um, give more attention to things that used to seem invisible. Um, I think that was one of my uh, ambitions of the book, that people would um, stop, um, stop not noticing things. Um, but I think, you know, the other thing that Tressel wrote at a time when capitalism in, its, in, its, in the form it was then was being hotly contested. And one of the things that, that's been really striking since 2008 is the lack of pushback, ideological pushback from the other side. It's as if, you know, Plan A had these manifest problems and we haven't really heard anything much about Plan B. I mean, I think that's a huge hole in the, in the debate. Bow before the might of King podcast. Okay. Um, you mentioned immigration. I agreed with very much with what you said. Uh, what about immigration? Obviously, you were born in Hong Kong. How would the true Englander, the little Englander, feel if he was told he could not immigrate? That's a very good question. I've never heard that quite put. I mean, it's, a, it's only quite recently that the statistics have counted emigration, so you now see net immigration. And there's an awful lot of Brits leave, um, you know, every year. Uh, it's a very good point. I always, it's a quite striking thing on your passport that your passport belongs to the state. Um, you know that I don't even know what the legal what the legal status of a passport is, but it very prominently says on it that it's the property of the HHM government, and that 
Yeah, and, and so pre presumably in some sense, you know, if they wanted, they can just stop you ever going anywhere. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in that thing of the way that identity plays out in that way because um, my dad was born abroad, uh, I'm, I was born abroad, and we both would, you know, self-identify as British, even though in fact, uh, you know, my, my father didn't live here at all until he retired in his 50s, and my claim to my claim to British citizenship comes from the grandfather I never met, died before I was born. Um, and so there's quite a lot of well-concealed um, emigration, immigration and mixing has always gone on here. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm interested in it in a, as a theme partly because I, um, you know, I didn't come over in the back of a lorry, but I, I did come here. I wasn't, didn't come here from birth. And... Um, it's, it's linked to that thing about the mercantile, you know, trading-based, expansionist-based theme in British history, which I think we kind of, we sometimes, um, we sometimes underestimate. Um, you know, we are, we're, we're a lot more, we're a lot more mixed than we think. Um, but I, I, I really like that idea, actually, if you start telling people they couldn't emigrate and see how they'd like it. I don't think it's going to be in anybody's party manifesto, though. <laughs> Um, so I also have not yet read Capital, but I did recently finish reading The Debt to Pleasure, uh, which I really enjoyed, and also has a pretty interesting structure. Um, and I was interested in the way you're talking about how you came to write Capital, and I'm wondering how you came to write The Debt to Pleasure. Uh, well, that um, I remember thinking uh, I was a graduate student, and uh, I was I just started to cook, which often happens. There may be graduates in this room in this very same position because you've been kicked out of student accommodation, and you're uh, you have nothing to do all day. So, you, so there's no canteen. You have nothing to do all day except try and avoid writing your thesis, and. Um, and so I started cooking, started reading cookbooks, and got very interested in cookbooks as a form. Uh, partly because there was there seemed to be lots of very good writing in them, lots of history, geography, stories, anthropology, autobiography, um, all kind of under the radar of what was just pretending to tell you about how to chop an onion. Um, and um, and it was not taken very seriously as a form, partly because so many of the very good writers in it were women, which I always thought that was interesting. It was kind of undercover form. And so I started thinking about it. It would be really interesting to have a cookbook that actually told a, a story. And thought, what sort of story? I mean, this is about to give it away if anyone hasn't read it. What sort of, well, it has to be a murder story. Um, and so the idea came from that, from a, um, a cookbook that kind of turned into a novel in front of your eyes while you were reading it. Um, and, then I, and then I spent, having had the idea, I spent five years thinking that I would wake up in the morning and finding that I had written it. LAUGHTER uh, and you know, for any aspiring writers in the room, that tends not to work, so you know. Uh, so then I eventually got going with it. And um, the, the curious thing about that was that it's dominated by the voice of the, the narrator. He's this sort of psycho narrator who adds up a, quite a significant body count. He murders about nine people, <laughs> nine people in the course of the book. Um, and actually, which leads to the oddest thing that happened when it came out, because the single question I was asked most often when it came out was, how autobiographical is it? 
uh, you know, it says, well, seeing he's a sort of homicidal serial, psychotic serial killer, so not very. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, so he had to be someone who. So there were sort of rules about what he, he, what he would sound like because he had to be someone who, you, when he starts talking, you think he's talking about food. Then you gradually realise that it's darker than that, and then actually you gradually realise that it's incredibly dark because he's a mass murderer, and so. That almost is like an, almost like an algebraic equation describing what his voice had to be like. It had to do all those different things. Um, so I, I knew that about him, but I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't sort of hear him. I couldn't tune in. And that were, and many months, about a year of false starts, just trying to. And I'd, I'd had the shape of the book and all that figured out, the, the structure of it, this journey, and that you gradually realise it's a dark journey, and the sort of story underneath. And that's the story that's running underneath then takes over. I sort of knew that from a fairly early point. But I just couldn't get him. And then one day, um, the sentence popped in my head. It was, uh, there is an erotics of dislike. And it was very odd. It was like I'd suddenly tuned in the radio and found the frequency. Uh, and then after that, I, I you know, got going. I was um, doing my usual speed, which was 500 words a day. And wrote it in you know, one, one big push through to the end. More or less one big push. Um, and so that was one of that was a, an early experience in the way of how um, how those things work. That you often have a formal problem. That it's like um, like a piece of algebra, um, uh, and that you're sort of stuck on. And then thinking it through, you do something that you know you can suddenly hear how a character talks. I found that several times. And there's a thing. Um, uh, Benedetto Croce is an Italian literary critic said about Dante talking about the terza rima scheme in Dante he said the starting point for inspiration is the obstacle and uh, I've always found that to be true and that was the depth of pleasure and that thing about the, the character's voice that was my first big education in just how that, how that works in practice The great thing about non-fiction is that you have um, there's a thing that's a gigantic pain in the backside about non-fiction, which is the obligation to get things right, um, which is so boring. Um, uh, and f- fiction is, is, is liberating in that sense. Um, fiction has to feel true, which is different from having to be true. It's a curious um, thing. And lots of things that happen in the real world don't fit in fiction at all. Um, you know, this credit crunch thing was part of that, but you're constantly getting amazingly strange things that happen in real life, which are only interesting because they actually happened. If they, if they were made up, they would just be, you know, they would be too reliant on coincidence or surprise. Um, uh, and that's a very, that, that distinction actually goes quite deep um, in, in between the two. Um, but, um, so there's this gigantic pain in the backside that you have to get things right, but on the other hand, a given piece of the world is still there. So in a, in a weird way, that's a safety net. You know, whatever the, the thing you're writing about, there is a kind of safety net in being able to go back to that chunk of the world that you're trying to get into a book and, you know, just have another look at it, extract another bit. Um, and there's no analogy with that in fiction in the sense that there isn't quite that, um, that safety net. Though funnily enough, you know, the toolkits for the two things are, are amazingly similar to do with selection and omission and pace and making things vivid and people being sort of characters. Um, and Jonathan Raven, a very good English writer who lives in Seattle, 
um, makes a very good point that you know the word fiction doesn't come from there isn't some Latin verb you know ficio I make stuff up. Uh, it, it's the past participle of fingere, which is the the word for shaping, for for, for making pots. It's the word for shaping a pot on a wheel, and um, you know in that sense they're more alike than they're unlike in that all the basic skills are to do to do with <coughs> giving something a shape. which I read this morning of Capital, um, which compares the novel favourably with Jonathan Franzen's freedom. And I wanted to, A, hear what you think of Franzen, and B, how you would compare Capital, which I haven't read, with freedom and corrections in other novels. I don't, know if I, I don't know if I would go. I mean, I, I know and like him. Um, uh, and um, uh, I recommend, by the way, um, the conversation I had with him once about books that writers like that aren't famous outside and he recommended a book by Dennis Johnson called Jesus Son so if anyone's interested in France I strongly recommend Jesus Son it's this book of short stories that um, is very very good um, no I wouldn't I mean I, I, I'm a great um, I like him and I'm a great fan of his writing I think that the um, uh, you know there's an apples and oranges aspect really because freedom is very different from the corrections um, and uh, both of them are, I think, are very different indeed from the capital but um, I like the fact that he um uh, you know, I, I really like those books, and I, I, I admire the way he does these. Um, you know, he sort of there's sort of two big currents, I think, in contemporary American writing. That there's a novel that's very interested in systems and modernity, um, and that has a sort of modernist backing, and it goes through writers like Pynchon, who I was talking about earlier, and and, and Don DeLillo. Um, who have immense verbal ingenuity and extraordinary intelligence, but they're often a bit deficient in things that we can all recognise in the kind of shapes and patterns of our own lives and kind of the ordinary feelings that we, are, we ordinarily have. And that, was, that sort of left to another strand in the American novel. And the thing I really liked about, um, about Franz and about Corrections was the way he brought those two things together, that it has a lot of the, the kind of big interests of those the Delilo-ish systems book, and yet it is also a story about a family, and I really admire the way he, he did that. I'm going to ask a question before I put the floor again. Um, I want what you have. Uh, we didn't talk about that. Uh, is that. Is that, does it have a purpose other than probably everybody wants what everybody else has? Well, it, uh, it performs various structural functions in the book, and I'm very interested in, the, in envy as a theme in British life. Um, and in the way that these mysterious postcards which people get through the door, they all interpret in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and they mainly see it as a material thing. And it's actually, um, without wanting to give too much away about the book, but um, I think most of the characters in the book come to start thinking about ways in which the most important of the things in their lives don't necessarily have pound signs attached to them. Uh, I work as a GP, <clears throat> and I was interested in the um, healthcare aspects that came into your story. 
and I, we teach medical students, so they inhabit our practice, and uh, it makes us sort of step back and look at things and reflect on how we communicate with patients and so on. Uh, certainly the doctor in your story comes across as being rather autistic, and um, the other, I won't say anything about it because people haven't read it, but the other, the bit about the care and the nurse and so on was relatively desiccated in terms of the, you know, it wasn't what we would look on as being good care. And yesterday I spoke to our medical students about palliative care and so on, and what do we try to achieve with that, and how do we resource it and so on. And I was just curious as if, is, was yours born of, I mean, I think these, what you're relating actually happens all the time, but I was just curious, is, did you make that up, or did you, have you had, you know, are you touched yourself by this uh, atmosphere and so on? Um, no, I've had, I, um, I mean, both, both my parents, well, my mother died in an NHS hospital, and um, some of the uh, things I described, they're not directly from the live, but you know, I've been in the room at various points. Um, the tone of that sort of, it, has a, it starts semi-comic and gets less so as she gets iller. Um, the, the one thing I would say I've noticed from my own experience, the one thing that drawn very directly from my own experience is, uh, that I'm slightly fascinated by, is eye contact with GPs is largely a thing of the past since they have computer screens. Um, and it's actually... Um, I, I now count, you know, I know as it were, one, two, three, four, five, and, and it's never the case that, the, that certainly in the GP practice I go to, which is very good, because very good clinical care, but it's never the case that more time is spent looking at you than at the screen. Um, and that has to impact care, I think. And so, you know, Petunia's journey through the healthcare system does start at that moment. Um, and, uh, you know, she does have quite a difficult, I, I, I fear probably not all that unrepresentative unre a time. But on the other hand, um, you know, she is dying, and she is going to die anyway. And the main, you know, the tragic component to her journey is, is, is that really, rather than, um, you know, she gets good bits of care, she gets le less good bits of care. But, um, you know, the kind of um, human content of it, I think, isn't really, you know, is, is the thing facing all of us. Having uh, moved to London when you were 27, and now having lived here for several years, um, do you actually like living in London? I do, yeah. Um, greatly to my surprise, uh, I, I do. I mean, I, I, um, I, don't, I don't remember when that happened. You know, I don't, I, and there was certainly no blinding light, and shaft of light descended from the heavens, and music going, ah, you know, and I realised. Um, but uh, yeah, I've now got to the point where I can't imagine living anywhere else. I know that's a slightly different thing. Um, it, uh, yes, uh, I th it's the things that, um, you know, the things you don't like are often the things you like. It's like the thing about not talking to your neighbours. But actually, I like not talking to my neighbours and not knowing my neighbours. And, and uh, whenever I go anywhere smaller or sleepier, uh, I get really irritated by people wanting to chat and wanting to, you know, know your business. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I like the thing in London pubs. I remember when we lived, lived in Norfolk, I had a, a girlfriend who said that the thing she hated about London pubs was the feeling that you could jump on the table, take your clothes off and start dancing and no one would even look up. <laughs> and I absolutely love that. Um, and I do think some of it is a form of, as I was saying to Revel, it's almost a form of politesse about in, some of our, in some of the reserve. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, I like the, um, the energy and the brashness and the diversity of it. Um, I remember when I was a student, I went to, I first went to New York in, I think it was 1981. And I remember thinking that it was almost as if the air was slightly caffeinated. You know, there was so much energy. And there was also a slight sense of menace that you could take a wrong turning, either literally going down the street or metaphorically you know, in a conversation. And, you know, you could be in trouble. Things could go wrong. And, and I now notice that in London, you know, that there is a sort of slight edge to it. Uh, and I'm afraid I really like that. Yeah. So I've, I've gone native, basically. Yeah, that's good. Did you have another question? Did you see something? Over there, right at Um, yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Mary Palo. I am from the Research Methodology Department of Berber College in London. Uh, thank you for the very thorough discussion this afternoon. Um, very recently I have had this great opportunity to participate in the recruitment of the London Ambassadors for the Olympic Games for 2012 in London. <coughs> Uh, having had this experience only to find out that some of them had been pushed to the rural areas um, while they have chosen as a first choice of location London. Bearing in mind that today's agenda is on relating cultures, I imagine that related cultures do not go alone but together with related localities my question to you is, what is your view on pushing the latest arrivals of migrants to rural areas as in comparison, as compared to pulling them in London, no matter if it is for the Olympic game or for any other matters or businesses, and in relation to the book you wrote recently, how this is affecting capital markets in the United Kingdom and some other crucial areas abroad, such as Korea, Peru, Greece, Portugal, and so on. Thank you. Well, I, I, um, it's an underreported scandal, the thing that's happened about um, migrant communities being displayed, you know, being kicked out of London to parts of the UK with which they have no links. It's happen it happens to many communities and it happens to all new arrivals now. And um, it particularly scandalously... Well, it's difficult to choose between scandals, but if you go into the asylum system, so in other words, if your claim is sufficiently legitimate for you to, to be put on hold, you're now not kept in the area where there are most people from your community, which is here. Uh, in all cases, there are more than here. Um, I mean, there are practical limits to, to the capacity of London and the South East. I think part of the problem is that um, governments are so reluctant to tell the truth on what the numbers are and the scale of investment needed um, that there's a kind of dialectic of mutual, you know, mutual deception. We're pretending, pretending we don't need immigration, pretending that it's not happening on the scale it is, and then uh, pretending that communities can cope 
which a lot of the time they can't. You know, and when people do, are dispersed through the country, they're often in parts of the UK which simply don't have the infrastructure to cope with it. That repeatedly happens, of people being dropped down cracks in the system. Um, so uh, I'm afraid it is happening. It is a scandal. Um, and there's no real uh, way forward I can see without the kind of a fundamental change in how candid we are in talking about in talking about immigration. This is um, going back to what, you, what we were talking about um, just a minute ago. I mean, you said you um, you've gone native. I've, I, I find that. I've lived in London for 20 years, but I find I like it less and less. And one of the reasons is um, that um, something that you've written about and talked about today is becoming more and more like Manhattan. Um, the poor being pushed out, we have full restaurants, um, but do you think you're still going to like London as much in five years' time? I don't know. I think Manhattanization is a real issue. Um, as you say, I have written about it. I mean, the sense in which that just as Manhattan has... It has um, all the financial services, a lot of the very rich people, much more ethnic diversity, and effectively um, the poor have been pushed out to the boroughs and over the various bridges and through the various tunnels and is becoming kind of cleansed uh, in a negative sense by money. And that could easily happen here. It's, w it's well on the way to happening. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it's so odd what's happening in London now that because, you know, people in the city will tell you that the good times are to some extent over um, the, the influx is coming is mainly people fleeing the euro zone you know because sterling's down and all the boom in, in the London property market which disproved my prediction about prices um, is coming from uh, is, is, that's mainly euro driven half a billion pounds in property in London uh, bought by Greeks and Italians last year alone half a billion that's a hell of a lot from just two not huge countries um, and so I think it's, it's a weird state just at the moment. Um, I, I find it very hard to believe that, that there won't be a sort of, you know, we're so like the 70s in so many respects. I think it would be surprising if uh, the bubble didn't, didn't start to shrink and um, the texture of life in London start to change a bit. And, and maybe a model... Um, is Japan. I mean, everyone talks about how, you know, the two decades of lost growth and all that. But actually, culturally, in Japan, uh, it's been very, very energetic and diverse. And um, young people are, have, you know, there's far more pluralities of identity have come about for young people in Japan, partly because growth has been flat. And so a lot of the sense of ways in which you can change and express yourself aren't about getting richer. They're about just living a slightly different life. Um, and so the, I, the Japanese model, which you know, there's much clucking and tutting about, um, actually in terms of what people's lives feel like, I think it um, could be quite positive. So um, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't buy that one-way non-refundable exit ticket just yet. And by the way, that that thing—it's funny that thing about whether you. You know the things that annoy you go down or up. So I've got a, a friend who lives in Paris, and the thing I notice about life in Paris is an incessant, uh, slight or not so slight rudeness. You know, all day, every day, and it's not—it's not xenophobia. They do it to themselves more than they do it to us. And uh, he was just saying that he's actually got to the point where he can't take it anymore. And he's about to crack, which is which is quite odd. You know, the thing about just that tiny thing of, you know, the guy who sells you the matches being quite rude and he's, you know, he's about to hop on the Eurostar. What other city would you, would you 
that there to live in? Oh, no, I mean, I like... I, um, I could, you know, part of the thing of moving about a lot as a, as a child, I'd happily live pretty much anywhere, I think. You know, I mean, I like London, I have no plans to move, and I'm s settled here in that sense. But um, my wife is, I always tease her for being a London peasant, because although she's impeccably cosmopolitan, she, you know, is two miles away from the hospital she was born in, two miles away from the school she went to. And she'd be much harder to dislodge. But I, I, I need a, a good cafe, an art cinema, and a bookshop. And, 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 and the library, and you know, there's, that gives you a certain size, but anything above that is, is fine. It gives you a good start. Yeah. Okay, one more question, last question. Um, okay, thank you. Um, one of the characters that I most enjoyed reading about was Mickey, um, and I think one of the problems perhaps with the novel is that you get attached to some of these characters and then you want to read more about them. When you wrote the novel originally, did you think there could be a risk of it be, um, appearing disjointed because there's so many stories happening which are interrelated? Well, which uh, aren't, sorry, interrelated. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things that, you, you know, it's so um, sort of baked into what the book is. Um, it's such a fundamental choice that there are, there are all these characters. Um, and I wanted that um, in the way that I wanted London to, to, to press on this street and be present in it was just that sense of, of plurality, there, you know, there are all these different people. I'm glad to hear you say you like Mickey because I, I, he's a favourite of mine, um, a favourite of mine too that not many people seem to have noticed but um, I, I did want that thing of um, to, you know, for there to be not quite enough of every character. That was a conscious aim that you, because it's as a way of creating this feeling that they're still there. If, if they're, you know, just in the sense that if you're, um, if you're slightly hungry, you're more interested in eating. And if, you're, if there's slightly less than um, society with each of these people, it leaves you more feeling that they're alive. You know, I wanted, I wanted that, I really wanted that feeling at the end of the book, that, the, that they're all still alive. Well, there was certainly no moment when, when the reader was born. You, to, you stop leaving, leaving us fascinated. When, when, when is their chapter coming next? Well, thank you. There's always that, there's that wonderful thing um, uh, Philip Larkin said about um, Auden's poem about the novelist. He said the novelist's duty was to become the whole of boredom. <laughs> and uh, Larkin said, but you know, Auden's, Auden's, Auden's wrong. No novelist has ever managed to become the whole of boredom. There's always a little bit left over for the reader. <laughs> Capital. John will write John, you'll go you'll find some books. We haven't talked about the extraordinarily clever title this book has. It has lots of connotations, doesn't it? Um, yes, I, I hope so. I mean the two main ones, the place and the the place and the stuff. Yeah, and the most important stuff of the stuff is not the stuff with the pound sign, I think. Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much. Thank you.